Welcome to another episode of Individuality Unleashed. Today I'm sitting down with Doris Childs. Thank you so much for joining us, Doris. Thank you for having me. So glad to be chatting with you today. Doris is a commercially minded and data-driven digital marketer with 15 years of experience across performance and brand marketing, specializing in luxury brands. Today, we're gonna to be talking about how luxury brands are redefining digitally native strategies. Wanna do that? Yeah, I'm up for it. Okay, sweet. <laughs> so let's start with the first question, Doris. Please provide our listeners, well, before we get into our first question, I think it might make sense if you can give just a little bit more detail about you and your career, yeah. uh, your background, and any of your areas of expertise. Sure, so um, I, as you said, I've been in the business for about 15 years. Um, I would say about 10 years of that, I worked for luxury brands. I have a mixed background. So I've been an agency side, I've been um, brand side. Um, I've done FMCG um, and now I specialize more in e-commerce, in D2C brands. And I feel like I finally found my niche. Like I really, um, I find myself or my days either applying kind of performance growth mindset onto like big glossy brand mm -hmm. advertising um, and ideas and vice versa, um, adding the kind of brand lens always to growth strategies, performance strategies. Um, and the two different worlds and often um, one type of people don't think the other way. Right. So I'm constantly um, jumping from one to another. And I really actually love that. So um, it's been a long time coming, but I feel like I found where I need to be. That's fantastic. So that breadth of knowledge and experiences has certainly set you up to have this conversation today. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, it has. And I believe that our audience will find a lot of value in everything that you have to share today. Okay, me too. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Doris, what are the key pillars that you think luxury brands should focus on when defining their digital marketing strategy? Um, so I had a thought about this and I actually think uh, any good strategy, marketing strategy especially, should start with a customer. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like um, having the customer in the center, whether it's a digital or traditional marketing strategy, no difference there. I think it's the basics of marketing. Uh, but I think what's really interesting about digital strategy um, is that the tools are constantly changing. Yeah. Uh, the way the customers are using the tools is constantly evolving. Um, the tech is shaping customer behaviors. The laws are changing. Um, the context is changing. So the only constant in digital marketing is change. And that kind of makes it quite um, interesting to, to keep keep us on our toes, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, there's a kind of balance of having a really good, like solid, base strategy, but then constantly uh, leaving yourself space to test these new changes that are happening in the industry. You know, uh, what if we, you know, took this format but made it into a video? Or what if we um, took this format and tried it on the different platforms? Mm -hmm. um, or what if we ran this for, I don't know, six weeks as opposed to two weeks? You know, just like little um, elements of change happening all the time. Um, and I think you are in a good place if your strategy um, is solid, but you always have room for agility. Mm. You always have room for testing uh, because you just have to go into it with an open mind that it will never be what you put on paper. It will always change. I, I love that. I think one of the things as far as marketing is concerned that we go into is hoping that with any new strategies that we deploy, any platform, any tools, that it'll be a big success and a hit. Yeah. But 
you never know when you're testing out. Oh, most things. of them fail. So yeah. <laughs> that, that needs to be a mindset that not everything will be a success. And then when you find that one nugget that you can then scale up and hopefully drive loads of increments of revenue, you know, that's then worth shouting about. But I think a very important part of um, leading a digital marketing team and, and um, organization is to celebrate those fails because mm -hmm. that's part of the learning curve. And I found it a lot in the businesses that I worked in that, you know, a few years ago, we didn't know how to celebrate the fails, mm. you know, so then it became a bit of a blame culture. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, we all looked at each other and were like, well, actually, no, that's what makes people feel like they're not good enough. We need to turn it around and celebrate it. And I think a lot of businesses who have got bigger digital departments have now definitely uh, made that change, which makes things much more fluid it's part of the BAU basically I love that going into the into your strategy understanding that the majority of the things that you do will potentially fail yeah but avoiding that blame culture as yeah you exactly say. exactly oh, I love that it's important I mm -hmm. think especially with you know a lot of mental health issues and things like that we talk about a lot it's today true. yeah in the in the workspace so yeah right because it shouldn't be discounted that people work hard and yeah. people are making a lot of assumptions and and you know, establishing hypotheses yeah. and testing those. We don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's the that's the thing. We're, we're guessing. It's a, right. it's always a hypothesis. Exactly right. Yeah. That's great. That's great. So as you know, uh, the traditional digital marketing landscape, display ads and reliance on third-party cookies have become more costly and less effective. Have you been able to drive efficiencies with these channels in the current climate? Well, so um, my point of view is that there's not, doesn't need to be a diverse channel mix for the sake of a diverse channel mix. Okay. Um, I think it needs to be, um, it needs to work for the brand first and foremost. And if it means that you have less channels, but they work really well for your brand, that's okay. Mm -hmm. I don't need to have a display as part of my, um, as part of my mix just for the sake of it. Um, and for the luxury brand, especially, I feel like the brand needs to have a leading role and, um, how it gets executed in different channels um, might work, but might not work. Yeah, so I my point of view in terms of the channel mix is, and even coming into the depreciation of cookies, is that we don't need to shoehorn every channel into the marketing mix just, just so we would have a diversity, diversity of channels. Mm -hmm. It needs to work for the brand um, and it doesn't need to be always on. You know, it can be on and off. Mm -hmm. So I, I believe that display or... Um, um, can work sometimes, but it doesn't have to work always. Mm. And I think in performance marketing, you always you always have this like always on mindset. Mm -hmm. It's not campaign planning. It's like it, it, it always needs to be driving you revenue. Um, so the way I approach channel mix is that I put the brand in the lead um, and I can't participate in every single format every single channel just because um, it might not work with the tech or it might not with my feed or it might not work with um, with my with my content um, and I will then take happily take a step back or I'll amend that um, for display for example specifically because you asked is like I might be able to only participate in 20% of the formats because mm -hmm. I don't want the small formats I don't want them to um, minimize my brand in how wherever they show up basically um, even like talking about taking Wonderkind as an example, you know, off the shelf, it's a performance product. Mm -hmm. And when we first started using uh, it in some of the brands that I've worked in, um, 
you amend it for the first six months we amended the off-the-shelf product mm-hmm. to work for the luxury um brand that we wanted to kind of put on the table for the customer which meant we weren't able to reap the benefits of all your best practices but we also meant that we created new best practices mm. for Wonderkind, mm-hmm. um, which, um, you know, ha- after having chatted with my team, is something that they thought were never going to work, but actually outperformed everything that we set out. Wow. So I think there's the beauty of it, is like you're taking a, that brand approach to a, a performance uh, channel or format or best practice, um, and you see if it works. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think... I um, I don't believe in, in spending a dollar or, sp- or hitting a spend for just for the sake of doing it or because it worked in my last job, it's going to work in my this job. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hope that kind of... It does. Uh, and it's just, I, I imagine it's especially true for luxury brands where it's less about driving perform- or delivering performance for the sake of driving revenue, but more so instilling or ensuring that your brand integrity is upheld yeah, through exactly. all communication. Through and that's all always a priority. Yeah. You know, the brand integrity always wins over the um, the last click demand, mm-hmm. you know, or last click sales, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, and it's, it's one that you, it's easy to forget. Mm-hmm. If you see the sales rolling in, you're like, yeah. this is great. <laughs> Let's do more Take of that. <laughs> but you really have to force yourself. And yeah. sometimes you don't force yourself. Your CMO forces you or mm-hmm. your brand marketing colleague forces you right. um, to rethink it. And then you're like, actually, hold on a minute. Yeah. Um, and I find often myself challenging those product roadmaps and um, and. Um, different vendors that we work with um, for the first time. So they they haven't done it before, they haven't needed to do it before because no client has ever asked them that before. Mm-hmm. So that is one part of the job I really enjoy, just mm-hmm. going into it where no one's kind of been before and um, really pushing the, the roadmaps, pushing the man- account managers that we're speaking with. Um, and it's usually painful, but it's twice as rewarding. So next question for you, Doris, why does traditional performance marketing not work for luxury brand consumers? Um, I don't I don't think it doesn't work for the consumers. I think it works for the consumers and the consumer doesn't necessarily think about it in that way. It's part of their behavior. Mm -hmm. They just want to find what they're looking for. And it does work for the consumer. It doesn't work for the brand. Mm-hmm. And I think it usually doesn't work for the um, for the CMO because they don't really um, they don't really imagine the brand to look up, look, look turn up in that way or yes. show up in that way. Um, and that's where the problem comes from. Um, it's always about because if it didn't work for the consumers, then there wouldn't be any revenue. But it does work with the consumer in that way. Um, And I think it's, um, it's, we always want to think about not the last like sale. It's more like the brand, uh, making sure that the brand can still live, outlive all these performance formats Mm -hmm. and whatever might happen in the next 50 years. And we're still going to be here. So it's, it's the longevity game. 
And that's kind of the lens of the brand, brand marketer, I think, when we look at a performance. So making sure that if I look back on those ads, I don't know, a year's time or two years time, we could still be proud of proud of ourselves over that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's not so much that it doesn't work for the consumer. It just doesn't work for the um, um, for the for the for the for the um, company. Yeah. And that's why we need to find a um a balance between between the two basically um or we need to compromise one towards the other um i also think that performance marketing itself um fashion brands love to talk about like beautiful words like elevated and mm-hmm. um and designer and luxury whereas performance has kind of got a bad rep i think as being um being that part of marketing that helps you meet the quarter or um you know a quick lever when something needs to be done. Um, I think this is a lot. I, I spend a lot of time repositioning that mindset in the company mm-hmm. um, and talking about kind of longer term levers and um, and longer term strategies rather than, you know, OK, we're down 20 percent. Let's let's do a flash sale. I think that's a da- dangerous territory. And I spend a lot of time even keeping chat away from it because or even like training um, the planning and the forecasting team that they can't come to us with that question. We're not interested in running anything like that. That's a dangerous territory because then that will start having an impact on your consumer because the consumer then will become used to knowing, oh, well, they ha- they're going to have a payday sale or um, I can always get that 20% off or something. Mm-hmm. And I think this is when you start losing the brand equity. It's mm-hmm. not so much about the always on like doing a good job for full price or new season and things like that. Um, so I try and stay away from that, um, like pure performance. I, I, I maybe call it, um, and also train the company to think that way, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And I love the point that you make about the consumers, um, instilling for lack of a better word, poor behaviors, when mm-hmm. it comes to interacting with your brand, with that expectation that eventually they're going to have a, a doorbuster sale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think we do need to be mindful of the customer and especially like in the recent six months, like building strategies, very mindful about their I don't know if you guys had that in the US, but in, in Europe, we were massively impacted by um, the war and the recession and our electricity prices, like going through the roof, like people literally not having money to heat their houses. Mm. Um, and then you think, like, how can I, how can we put something um, out there for the customers so that they can still buy presents, they can still gift because these needs don't go away right. uh, to pass along some sort of like um, humanity to our customers. And it's then coming on to like, adding value pieces and making sure that we gift wrap for free or we make that gift really special or they feel like it's worth spending that money rather than saying, oh, it's 50% off, you know, which which what a lot of retailers and a lot of brands did did have to go down. Um, so you do have to be mindful of the customer and the economy that the customer lives in. But at the same time, um, you don't want to chip away on your brand equity while doing that. So adding value is a nice kind of compromise for that. That's great. I want to shift gears really quickly and talk uh, 
less so about the the consumer relationship that you have with your brand to your consumer, but I want to talk about what's going on internally with inside um, a brand when it comes to relationships, specifically the relationships between CMO, um, digital marketers, and CFOs, those that control the uh, the PNL for the business. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what's what has been your relationship like with CFOs and other executive leaders uh, within yeah. the brands that you've worked for? Yeah, I think that communities have definitely come a lot more closer together in the last few years. Um, there is a lot more dialogue between the marketing community, the CFO, um, digital marketing especially. Um, and it's not, it's kind of happened because of um, COVID, I think, mm-hmm. as, a, as a starting point. Um, but it's continued since then. Um, and I would definitely definitely say that my CFO now knows when to reach out to me with what topics. Um, but it's all, not always been that way. Mm. Um, and I had to spend quite a lot of time building that credibility with the CFO. Um, and sometimes, you know, it would require literally just sharing things with them that might help them in their job um, or might them might help them understand the context a little bit better. Um, and sometimes it's like speaking up in, 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 in meetings where a marketing doesn't usually chip in, basically. Mm. So a lot of those kind of slightly awkward <laughs> conversations <laughs> later, I think they're starting to see the value. Mm-hmm. Um, so and my general kind of approach has always been about upskilling mm. um, in a kind of organic way. We don't, I don't want to be um, like a kind of know-it-all approach, right? It's more like whether you're talking to a CFO, whether you're talking to an intern, you're always trying to build context around the answer that you're giving. Um, so if someone sends you an email with a simple answer, you can just go back with a really simple reply, mm. or you could say for this, this, and this reason, that's what we want to do that. And immediately they will understand a bit more about the big tech, the, the digital marketing, how it works, how spend is a big part of us driving sales. So it's like finding those moments, mm-hmm. um, of education, education at all levels. And I really encourage my team to do the same. Um, at their levels. So going back to their peers, they're always upskilling while they're doing BAU basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I think one key thing is that it's so easy to relate to like traditional marketing. Like it's everywhere around us. We've watched TV for years, you know, we, we see billboards. And if you talk about out of home or if you talk about a TV ad, everyone's seen it, everybody knows what that is. I th- really think that performance marketing sometimes can be a little bit invisible. Um, so, and people are like, oh, are these ads? Or, oh, I didn't realize like mm-hmm. this was an affiliate article, you know, things like that. It's it's quite technical um, in some ways. Um, and that's what makes it harder to understand. And, and that's why I feel like I have a space to add value um, to the conversation around cookies, around iOS, around um, CPA, commission rates, whatever. Mm-hmm. I think kind of shedding light on how the industry works um, is something that um, I can chip in, in in those conversations. That's that's great. So like, in order to become a better internal advocate, not only for yourself, but for the business, 
being ready and able and willing to share information yeah. and, and educate. I mean, you, co you can go in and be an expert who just knows it all and, and takes all the decisions, yeah. or you can bring everybody along with you and try and help them make, make and understand why you're making those decisions or where it's coming from. Um, so I've always felt like the second option is, is, is easier in a way because you then just don't go in and out and you're replaced by another expert. You actually make other people experts. Mm. Um, I still remember like this article I read ages ago about um, there used to be like people in companies who were like head of electricity when like electricity came in. Yeah. Like people were just like helping the world integrate with electricity or whatever. Yeah. And I'm like, this is the same with digital. Like we ultimately everyone's gonna have to understand how it works right right now we have these people come in and and talk about um specific topics and tell you how to navigate around it but ultimately everyone's gonna have to do it so the sooner we get there the better i suppose that that's great doris i want to dig a little bit now that we understand how cmos and cfos could and should work together with the education element um i know one topic that's really um top of mind for many marketers is how has your overall go-to-market strategy changed with the recession for the brands that you've worked for? Um, so on top of like trying to be mindful of the consumer mm -hmm. and what they're going through and what they're now forking out um, for, um, I think a really important part of planning for success in recession is also um, talent. Yeah. And um, having resource issues um, in in your teams um, when we have a co um, like a hiring freeze mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. we hear a lot about the big tech layoffs, right. you know. So um, I think that's a reality that we need to think about when we um, when we, we might not be able to do everything. Um, we're not not to the sophistication we've used to doing it or a scale that we're used to doing it. So we might have to compromise uh, markets or campaigns or um, timelines mm -hmm. in order to really focus on um, what's the core of our business um, or what's the core value of our business. Um, so I think I'm going to have to think a lot about in terms of um, how can I spread more work bigger targets around either the same level of people or less people or how I might lose agency resource um, at the same time. Um, I think in the last couple of years, we've got so used to kind of asking it, having it, asking it, having it, because right. we were such a big driver of the business. It needs to come back, take a step back, and maybe we, th we need to think more about like how do we use data, how do we use platforms more um, wisely, how do we challenge our vendors a bit more. Um, and I think first party data is very important when we start talking about that because we get to be smarter. Um, we have more time to think and less time to, um, and less having to react, mm -hmm. um, I suppose. Um, that that's good, sense. which is actually a good segue to the next question. From a luxury brand perspective, how important is first party data? Yeah, I mean, luxury brand, any brand, whatever you do, I think first party data is super important um, because in the new 
GDPR world that we live in in Europe. Um, without that, you don't really know who your customer is. Mm-hmm. You're you're gonna or who your future customer is, I suppose. Um, because if you either don't know the first party data, you don't collect it, or a retailer collects on behalf of it, or they will ultimately define your customer. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's it's hugely important making sure that um, we collect it in a in a really um, honest way, mm-hmm. but we also have a good value exchange with the customers. So mm-hmm. it's not that they're giving something away without getting anything back. They feel like they're getting just as much out of that relationship as the brand does, you know? And I think that's what needs to be put at the front of a really good first party data. Um, so, and it's hard to kind of compete from a, from a luxury brand to compete with a luxury retailer because the luxury retailer has huge scale. Mm-hmm. They have very sophisticated back end. They have um, amazing supply chain. Um, offering a discount here and there doesn't damage their brand. Um, so they have a lot more like front end levers, I would say, to get that customer in. Um, whereas a brand would really have to think about... Um, what is the in immediate value exchange to get people in? Um, how do we keep them engaged? Um, what can we offer them in the long run? Um, what benefit will they get, like loyalty schemes and stuff? Because your scale is smaller than a retailer. So therefore, um, it will be less financially viable than for a, re- for a retailer to do that. But still, um, for the sake of first-party data, for the sake of caring for our customer, um, we feel like it's a very important strategic lever and when we talk about go-to-market strategy in recession you know you focus on the small that brings the majority rather than focus on the majority who brings maybe a one-time purchase Mm -hmm. you know so it's it's that sort of thinking that makes sense um this has been a really really great conversation and i I hate to end this but i want to finish with one uh, last question around what you assume what's what's your prediction for luxury um for luxury retail in uh, in the future, um, luxury brands and and retailers. That's a really good question. I oh, know. I'm sorry. I just threw <laughs> that one at you. <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of chat around like digital mm-hmm. goods and going down the digital route. Um, I think what I, one trend I really love out of covid is that everyone was predicting you know the world's going to go digital and it's all going to stay digital but what's been really nice about it is how the digital and the physical have mixed and like how people now go to the store and they use their phones they use their digital um aids i suppose Mm -hmm. to make that purchase in store but the in-purchase especially in the luxury um in the luxury world can be so powerful Mm. you know Mm -hmm. like going and buying a luxury handbag from let's say a department store where there's million people there like pushing pulling pushing pulling from a little countertop that's for your brand or walking into your own flagship store you know having a dedicated person a glass of whatever you fancy and like choosing your product such a powerful experience you know so that digital quick scalable 
world cannot be brought to physical in that way. Mm -hmm. And I like how the two mix. And when we talk about like digital goods and NFTs and things like that, um, it's the same thing. It's like using that digital um, technology to validate your physical products mm -hmm. or to be able to make sure that they can be validated 20 years, 30 years from now. I think that's quite a nice um, mix, which I think will probably continue and continue to grow. Do you know what I mean? I do, yeah. That's fantastic. And I think that's really great uh, insight for our listeners when it comes to looking at the future and really prioritizing uh, from a digital marketing perspective that combination of in-store versus online mm -hmm. and the power and, yeah. and combining those strategies. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think we're going to see more of that in the future. And there's a lot of MarTech that's supporting it, right? It's, right. it's, it's online and it's in-store, you know, um, various different products. And I think um, it's nice how we're lending things from one to another mm -hmm. um, and finding a kind of world where both exist. So I think um, that will be interesting to see what, what, what else happens with that. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Doris, thank you so much for taking time to sit down with us. No worries. I hope it was useful. Oh, oh my gosh. It was so useful. <laughs> what are you talking about? It was so good. And we hope that you guys enjoyed yourself as well. Again, that's another episode of Individuality Unleashed. <laughs>